I think that it's passages like this before us today that we need to remind ourselves that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and that it is profitable. This text before us that Matt just read, however difficult to understand on its various levels of complexity, this passage of Scripture was given to us by God. God wants us to understand these verses. He wants us to understand this passage. And so this passage of Scripture here is profitable. If you're reading through that list as Matt was reading, if you're going through that and you're thinking, how in the world do you preach this thing? How do you think through a text like this? Can't we just move on? We know Noah's coming, so Noah's a really cool story. Can we just kind of push on into that? But I don't want to do that because the kind of preaching we do here, we just walk through books of the Bible little by little. This passage is so profitable. And honestly, as I was studying this week, I was really um, ministered to by it. There's so much here before us today. But I'll freely admit that within these verses, that there are some really difficult, difficult questions that can come up with a genealogy. Something like even in the first verse, in chapter 4 and verse 17. Cain knew his wife. Okay, where did Cain get his wife from? Or you think of verse 19. Lamech took two wives. Okay, so does that mean polygamy or bigamy in his case? Does that mean that polygamy is okay? Or another question we could, that, that could come up is, well, what about the age that these people were living to? Did Methuselah really live to be 969 years old? Or what about Enoch? The text says of this guy named Enoch that he walked with God and he was not, for God took him. So Enoch has this wonderful relationship with God on earth, and then all of a sudden, God just takes him to heaven. And we're going to touch on most of those questions this morning. But I don't want to get too bogged down in them because even though the answers to those questions are interesting or speculating about those questions is interesting, it's not the point of these verses. There's a much broader thought developing here. There's something that our author Moses is tracing and what he's doing is showing us really two different family trees that come from Adam. Now it's interesting to me that many people have a very difficult time reading genealogies. Like, you know, we joke about Matt reading through these, this passage. Or you get to Chronicles, and I think there's 11 chapters of genealogies. Or even in the New Testament, there's a couple of, And we get to those, and we're like, why in the world is this here? And why do I have to read it? And so it's interesting to me that we don't like reading the genealogies or the family trees within the Bible. But most of us, many of us, love to know about our own family trees, don't we? Like, we love to know our own family trees histories. We like to see what our great, great, great grandparents did for work. We like to know where they lived. We like to know what countries they came from. And so we we dig and we dig and we start exposing and looking at our family trees. One statistic that I saw said that in 2019, that genealogies, family tree type stuff is going to be a $3 billion industry. So of course, nowadays, it's, it's really ramped up because we can do DNA testing now, right? So, so we can just kind of take a sample, send it off, and, and get it all sent back to us of our, our exact heritage. And so that's, that's interesting to us. But generally speaking, when you start looking into your family tree, it can either be encouraging or it can be discouraging, can't it? To, to see what your great-great-grandparents actually did. 
can be kind of discouraging. You, you begin to realize that they're actually normal human beings, right? They're not mythical. They're normal. You see sin. Maybe they murdered somebody. Maybe they spent a bunch of time in prison. I can even think of my own family tree. And my grandmother, her mother, um, left her at an orphanage. And my grandmother grew up at an orphanage. It's like, well, I wonder who my great-grandmother was and what issues she had and what struggles she had. She was just a normal person. But yet my grandmother grew up in an orphanage. There's sin. There's struggle. There's issues. And it can be disheartening when we start seeing that they were humans with the same sin nature that we have. And in this morning's text, this is a lot of what we see. We see the record of people who lived from Adam all the way down to Noah. And this is a span of about a thousand years. All right, so when you're going all the way from Adam from the very beginning and you read the genealogy all all the way to Noah, that's a thousand years. It's incredible. And within these two family trees that we see in our passage this morning, there is one family tree that seems as though it's riddled with sin, struggle, issues. And then on the other side, we we have a better family tree, one that seems to be marked with godliness and hope, while that first family tree is filled with expressions of depravity. And so for those of you who have been really tracking in this Genesis series, and you remember Genesis 3.15, and the seed of the woman and the seed of the snake, the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the snake, this morning's verses is really going to begin to unfold that idea. Because we have this wicked line of Cain, the seed of the snake, Satan, and you have the godly line of the woman from Seth. So it's a beautiful picture of these two lines Very, very different. But look with me beginning in Genesis 4, beginning in verse 17, where we see the sinful line of Cain. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, when Cain built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of all those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. And then you have Lamech saying to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So what you have here, as you read through that, you can see this sinful line, can't you? You can see that there is wickedness within this line. That sin is coursing through the veins of all people from their father all the way back to Adam. And at the top of this family tree is Cain. So again, the text says that Cain knew his wife. Now the million dollar question is, where did Cain get his wife? And I don't think that we need to think too hard about this. Cain married his sister. Adam and Eve had more children than just Cain, Abel, and Seth. They would have had daughters that aren't recorded for us uh, within this genealogy. And so Cain would have been left to marry one of his sisters. Now, while this would be spoken of of being wrong later on in the Bible, that God was going to put the kibosh on that, that it wouldn't happen, this is something that we do see, at least in the beginning of the Bible, that, that within these times, under these conditions, that it was acceptable. 
that there were no other people to marry. So this would not have been against the cultural norm like it certainly would be for us today. This would have been the cultural norm. This would have been completely normal for them to do. Later on in Genesis, we see that Abraham was married to his half-sister. So even in the pagan land that Abraham had come from, he was married to somebody who was his half-sister. Again, this was before the law was written. So apparently somewhat normal for them to do, and certainly normal for Cain. But did you notice what is recounted for us in verse 17? That Cain built a city. Why would it be significant that Cain built a city? Do you remember the judgment of God onto Cain for killing Abel? That God says that Cain was going to be a vagabond. He was going to be a wanderer of the earth, right? That was going to be Cain's life. That's how he was going to spend the rest of his life. Yet here, what is Cain doing? He's building a permanent residence. Like he's saying, that judgment that was levied onto me by God to be a wanderer of the earth, he's saying, no, I am not going to wander the earth. I'm going to rebel. I am going to build a city and I'm going to live there. He's going to be in a place of security, not in a place of wandering, right? So he builds this city. He names this after his son. And all of these different things begin to happen. You see culture beginning to happen. Cain builds the city in verse 17, and that's a bit of culture, obviously. Jabal was the father of those who dwelled in tents and had livestock in verse 20. So you have the breeding of animals and animal care going on. In verse 21, you have music. Jubal was the father of those who played the lyre and the pipe. In verse 22, you have people who can make things from bronze and iron. And so by the time you get through these first few verses, what you have is this bustling city that was created by Cain, filled with people who knew how to take care of animals. Filled with people who knew how to make music and knew how to make homes and who knew how to make tools and weapons out of bronze and iron. And I've often thought of that as, wow, that's really significant. And that's great. That's, that's positive, right? That's a really great thing. But as I was studying it this week, you begin to sense that there's actually a hint of negativity to that. That those are good things, but there's something negative in what's driving them toward those different things. So while it sounds wonderful that there's husbandry and music and forging, these are all done by the wicked line of Cain. This shows that common grace is is a wonderful thing, that God has allowed those who are even godless to do wonderful things. And I think that's what's pictured even within these verses. But when you contrast the line of Cain and all of the things that his descendants are doing with the line of Seth and all of the things that his line does, you can see that there's a world of difference between them. That in contrast with the line of Seth, that for the unbeliever and for the line of Cain here, this world was the closest that they were going to get to heaven. This world is the only home that Cain's line was ever going to know. And so it's where their sole focus would be. It's where they would zoom in. It's where their utter attention would be. That this city would not have the presence of God within it. That there would be no worship of the true God in the city that Cain built. And so their animal care would not be to provide sacrifices for worship. Their love of music would not be to use music as a way to worship God. Their abilities in forging would not be to build buildings or settings or pulpits or altars for God. It would be all for themselves. Their focus on the things of this world makes complete sense because they had no other place to put their focus. 
They had no hope of God, no hope of real worship. That city was completely void of God. So they weren't working on music and city building and breeding and so forth for the glory of God. They were doing it ultimately for their own glory. And so I think what you see here is really a foreshadowing of what the Tower of Babel comes to represent. That they're building all of these things that it's ultimately for them. And this remains to be seen all around us in the world today, doesn't it? Now you see the great intellects of our generation and most of us have lived through this incredible technological shift, right? The Bill Gates and the Steve Jobs and all of these Silicon Valley in California, all of these Google, YouTube. And what's it all being built for? Is it being built for the glory of God? I think they can be used for the glory of God by Christians, but ultimately were they created for God's glory or for the glory of man? So while these developments would be helpful, again, that's God's common grace, these developments were not made with the glory of God as their chief end. But the next major player after Cain and these builders of culture would be a man named Lamech. Lamech, this wicked descendant of Cain, he expresses his depravity in at least two ways here. In that he was first the first polygamist that the Bible records in human history. But then the second thing is that he is a murderer. So what he's done is he's desecrating what God has created. First, he's desecrating the institution of marriage. It was Adam and Eve, supposed to be one man and one woman. But the second thing he's desecrating is the image of God in somebody else. So he's a bigamist and he is a murderer. So notice that polygamy originates in the wicked line of Cain. It's not in the godly line that we will look at soon. But notice again in verse 23 that Lamech is boasting about how we killed. So Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I have to say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So Lamech brings out his two wives and he tells them about how he has killed. And he's boasting about this. He's bragging about this. Right? Just like when you get a big buck and you say, hey buddies, look at my deer, right? Like that's what he's doing with these men that he has killed. An older and a younger man. He's boasting about how he's killed them. And this is just an endless display of boasting in his own wickedness. But again, how many people in our own day boast in their wickedness? Does not our culture boast in their wickedness? Do you not see videos? You watch the news and you can see people bragging about their sin. Open. As open as it can possibly be. I remember the first pride parade that I ever saw in the city of Providence. And I was in downtown Providence. And this pride parade was going on. And it's just an endless, open display of wickedness. And he's boasting. Even as we continue to boast in our own sin. But thanks be to God that the Christian does not boast in his sin. He boasts in Jesus. So he's boastful. that he says that if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. If the revenge on Cain was going to be sevenfold, the vengeance on me is going to be seventy-seven. This number seven in the Bible is a number of perfection. And this idea of seventy times seven is used elsewhere in the Bible, isn't it? But not in terms of revenge. But the opposite. 
It's actually used in terms of forgiveness. What does Peter do? He comes up to Jesus and he says, Hey Jesus, how many times should I forgive somebody? Seven times? Like, that's really generous. Those of you who have had to forgive somebody over and over again, you're like, all right, seven times? I mean, that's kind of the max. And what does Jesus say? He says, no. He says, I say, you forgive 70 times seven. So you have wicked Lamech who promises 77-fold revenge on anyone who would cross him. He's the king of revenge. Yet Jesus is the king of mercy. Jesus is the king of forgiveness. And he extends forgiveness to all of us who are His. All of those here, we as sinners, we are worthy of vengeance, right? Like We are worthy of it all being taken out against us. But instead, the King of Forgiveness steps in and He takes that. He bears the brunt of the vengeance that is due to all of us. And He has forgiven us. And so in the line of Cain, we see wickedness. We see self-service. We see a distortion of God's creation of the covenant of marriage. You do not see a mention of God's name once in this part of Cain's lineage. But then we come to another son that Adam and Eve had. And his name is Seth. Look at verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born. And he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So even in that little bit that you see, this line of Seth stands in wonderful contrast to Cain. These little tidbits of information that Moses sprinkles in throughout these names about the godly line of Seth, they're all good things. These are not perfect people. These are not people who don't have any sin. But they do not seem to be people who glory in debauchery. The people themselves even calling upon the name of the Lord in Seth's day. The genealogy closes out with Noah at the end of chapter 5, who of course we know God uses. He's an upright man. He's a blameless man. Yet in verse 25, we see that Eve bears the son named Seth, and she has hope within this son, doesn't she? Of course, Abel has been killed. And she has hope within this son when she says, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. Do you see that word offspring? He's appointed for me another offspring. I will put enmity between the woman's offspring and the Satan's offspring. Again, Genesis 3.15. The name Seth here means appointed one. He is the appointed offspring who would come after his brother Abel. Picturing and pointing us to the full offspring who would be Jesus. It would be through the line of Seth, not the line of Cain, that the people of God would come through, the Israelites. But then Jesus would eventually come through the line of Seth, not through the line of Cain. But the first indication that you get that things would go better with Seth's line is the fact that people are calling upon the name of the Lord. That these people are calling on the name of Yahweh. And this is what we would call covenantal language. And when you're in these days in a covenant that you're going to call upon the name of a great king, So if you were a a lesser king in the area, what you would do if you had somebody who was infiltrating uh, your your area, your little kingdom, you would call upon the great king to come and to help you. And that's the kind of language that's happening here. 
That they're calling upon the name of the Lord. They're calling out to the great King. And this is, is this not what's even in the book of Romans in regard to our own salvation? Call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. That's covenantal language. And that's what we're seeing here in this text. That they're calling upon their great King. But the idea that's getting across here with calling upon the name of the Lord is public worship. That it seems as though Seth's family is calling upon the name of the Lord in regular gathered worship here. Now what we see is what one author said, when true piety enters the fallen world through Seth's family. True godliness. The worship of God in splendor and holiness and regularity comes through the family of Seth, not Cain. But there wasn't just regular gathered worship like we're here today, even participating in. But there's an indication that it's not just an outward expression of piety and love for God, but that there's a shining example in Seth's family of somebody who truly throughout his week and all of his days and years actually walked with God. And his name is Enoch. Look at verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years. 300 years. Do you believe that? And do you believe that his son actually lived to be 969 years old? Absolutely. It's what the text says. It's what the church has long believed all throughout history. And it's interesting because as you begin to go through Genesis, you can see how they do get younger and younger as time goes. So it's not as though, oh, maybe, maybe it was like two years for one year, and so it was really just kind of like six months would have been a year. So, okay, the math still doesn't work, but uh, someone who's better at that could figure that out. But that's just the way it was. Whether it was because the gene pool was perfect, whether it was because environmental situations were, were different, where there's a, a certain canopy theory where that may have crashed, which ended up causing a lot of the rain and so forth, we, we don't know. But we can trust God at his word. Yet Enoch here walked with God for 300 years. One of my favorite things to do is to sit with older saints who have been walking with God for 50, 60, 70 years. Like the sweetness that older folks who have walked with Jesus for decade upon decade, the way that they talk about Jesus in such sweet terms, how they express their unbridled affection and care for him. Bethany and I know a, a woman. She's 96 years old. She, she's in Wisconsin. And she has home hospice care right now. But she's been walking with Jesus for like 70, 80 years. And her husband was a pastor. And um, he's been gone for like 20 years. And it's just kind of, she's at this point where she's telling her family, pray that Jesus takes me. I want to see Jesus. And I want to see my husband. Isn't that just so sweet? Where you can get to a point in life where the things of earth grow strangely dim because you just want to see and be with Jesus. And Enoch here walked with God for 300 years in constant communion with Yahweh. Do you long for that? Do you long for that kind of relationship with Jesus? 
In the last week or so, especially, I I was given a book by my father's pastor about the Puritans and the way that they walked with God and how they were intimate with God, how they loved Him dearly, how they were broken over their sinfulness, but yet they rejoiced in their Savior. They would have meaningful time with God. Some of these people, several hundred years ago, these Puritans, they would spend five or six times a day with God, just praying, reading the Word. And I read about these ones and know how sure I fall of having that kind of genuine intimacy with Jesus. But I want it. I want what Enoch had. I want to walk with God in that kind of way. Do you want to walk with God in that kind of way? Is there anything that's holding you back from saying yes to that question? What could possibly hold you back from a real, true, and vital relationship where you can actually, I'm walking with God. My aim is to please God. The book of Hebrews mentions Enoch when it says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he shouldn't see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken up, he was commended as having pleased God. And so Enoch is walking with God and God just takes him up into heaven. Now Enoch didn't have a tombstone, did he? But if he had a tombstone, I would want on my tombstone what Enoch could have had on his tombstone. That he walked with God. That he pleased God. God. The great Matthew Henry wrote this about what it looks like to walk with God. He said, walking with God is to set Him before us and to act as if we were always under His eye. It is to make God's Word our rule and His glory our end in all of our actions. It is to make it our constant care and endeavor in everything to please God and in nothing to offend Him. Brothers and sisters, could it be said of you that you walk with God That you live every moment as if you're under His eye. That the Word of God rules you. And not for your glory or for anyone else's. But that you live for Him and His end alone. I want to live that kind of life. Brothers and sisters, seek every day to grow in your walk with God. Get to know Him better. Talk with Him more. Walk with Him. Ask the Spirit of God, even right now as you're sitting there. Ask Him to help you to walk by the Spirit. Now, despite growing in our walk with the Lord, I I don't think that we should expect the outcome that Enoch received. In verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Can you imagine that? Like a stairway to heaven? Enoch just goes. Enoch's walking with God, loving him, rejoicing in him. Then all of a sudden, Enoch wasn't. God takes him away. He, he took him to glory. Elijah, later on in the Old Testament. Remember that Elijah gets taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire, right? Or you have Jesus himself in the New Testament who ascends into heaven. But Enoch did not experience death. That death would not be the final part of Enoch's life. As it had been from Adam all the way through, Enoch was not going to die. And it's almost chilling that as you read through this genealogy, this story, these descendants, you see the word died over and over and over again. Just not applied to Enoch. This person lived this many years, they had these children, and they died. This person had this many children, they lived this many years, and they died. And that pretty much sums up all of us, right? This Brandon lived X amount of years, he had these kids, and he died. And that's a summary of all of our lives. But not for Enoch. He had kids, but he didn't die. But why? Like that's one of the questions that you have to be asking yourself. Why did Enoch not die? 
Like it seemed like he was having a great relationship with God on earth. Why did he need to be gone up into heaven, right? And be taken into glory. And I think that the answer isn't so much about Enoch. That God just took him to heaven for Enoch's sake. But he did it for the sake of the godly line that Enoch was a part of. That what God is doing here by taking Enoch is he's communicating hope. He's communicating hope to the godly line of Seth and for all of those who would follow the way of God. That there is hope for the righteous. That Enoch wasn't going to be taken up into purgatory. Enoch wasn't going to be taken into some oblivion and wait. No, he was going to be taken into the very presence of the God that he walked with. And so that from the very beginning chapters of the Bible, Enoch stands as a symbol of the hope that all of those who have faith in Christ will one day be with Christ. And so none of you should expect that your walk with God is just so good that you might not be here next week because you're going to just go up into heaven. But what you can expect as a Christian is nothing short of being in the very presence of God when you die. And Enoch while he did not die, is a wonderful example to all of us who persevere in this life in our walk with Jesus. That we're going to be in God's presence for all of eternity. The beatific vision that you're going to look into Jesus' face. Doesn't that change how you live now? But there's one final name that I want to mention. And it's the man that we all know as Noah. Look at verse 28 in chapter 5. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord is cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now this is not the same Lamech who was in Cain's line. This is a different Lamech who fathers Noah. And you see what is said about Noah. That out of the cursed ground, this one will bring relief from our work, and from the painful toil of our hands. Noah's name means relief, means rest. And he's an important figure, obviously, that's mentioned many times in the Bible. Yet the account of Noah and his faithfulness and righteousness is so important. His obedience to God, that he would build an ark. And really, that whole episode that we'll be looking at soon with the ark is vital to our understanding of who God is and even who we are. But finishing with Noah and his three sons pushes us along into the rest of the book of Genesis. God has given us so much within these first few chapters. And then the end of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5 serve not only as a review of where we've been, but they help to catapult us into the next section of the book with Noah and the ark. But as we close... I want to leave you considering these two great lines. The line of Cain and the line of Seth. Cain's line is obviously wicked, right? He's out for himself. He's murderous. He's distorting of marriage. But then you have the line of Seth. Calling out to God in worship. Walking with God. Hope of eternal life for all of the godly. The significance of worldliness, friends, is not very significant. But the significance of godliness is everything. That's why I've titled this sermon as The Significant Life. Living the Significant Life. Because if you're going to live for yourself, and if you're going to live for worldliness, your life is going to mean nothing. 
But if you live for godliness, that's going to be everything. Even right now on our church sign, it's a famous line by C.T. Studd that says, um, somebody help me. Nope. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You want to live a significant life? Live for Jesus. The names within these genealogies are immortalized forever. These are written in the eternal word of God. But our names are written in another book if we belong to Jesus. They're not written in this book. And you know what that means? Is that people on earth, after we die, they are going to forget us. A couple generations down the line, people are going to forget us. You could find the cure for cancer, get your name slapped onto a bunch of buildings, and those buildings are going to have to come down someday. They're going to forget you. Think of all of the governors of the state of Maine. Can any of you name the governor like three or four or five ago? What about the senators that we've had? Can you name the senators? Can you name all the vice presidents? Can you name some of the most important people that have ever lived? I would guess that most of us couldn't even name our great-grandparents. We could all name our grandparents, I'm sure. But what about their moms and dads? Could we even name them? My great-grandmother, who left my grandmother at an orphanage, I have no idea what her name is. We forget that quickly. Two generations from now, your kids' grandkids will have no idea who you are. I don't say that to discourage you. That life is meaningless and that who cares what we do because no one's going to remember us. I tell you that to encourage you. I tell you that because it matters to live a godly life. To live a significant life is to live a godly life. To live a significant life would be to be the kind of life that follows after Jesus and serves the living God. Don't live for yourself. Walk with God. Obey God. Trust God. And then you know what the story will be when your kids have their grandkids? It'll be my grandfather or my great-grandfather. Can't remember his name, but I've heard unbelievable stories about how he walked with God. That's what they'll remember. I love the words of Jesus when he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's, will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his own soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? The godly significant life is a life of self-denial. It's a losing your life for Jesus' sake. What would it profit you to gain the whole world and everything you could ever want and lose your own soul? There is no profit in that. There is only eternal loss brothers and sisters live a significant life not in the eyes of the world not according to worldliness but according to godliness you won't regret it let's pray Jesus Lord I pray that you'll help us to do that we know that we can't in our own strength We know that each day as we walk, that is you who is the one who is hemming us in, holding us fast, helping us to walk by the Spirit so that we don't gratify the desires of our flesh. And I pray that you'll continue to help us to do that.
We want to live righteously. We want to live godly. Yet we have this indwelling sin that besets us so often. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us to put that aside so that we can run with endurance and perseverance. We thank you for the examples that we have in our text. And we're thankful for how they point us to you, Lord. They point us to Jesus. And I pray that you'll help us to look to him, the author and finisher of our faith. So it's in his name we pray this. Amen.